All right, well today our text is going to be Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to chapter 2, verse 15. And you can turn there now, but put a place marker there because we'll not be reading right away from there. Um, I know I'm going out of order today, but everything has been out of order, so we're going to... I'm just trying to keep some of you in the wake in the back there. Uh, I see you. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now I have to admit, uh, deep down inside, I really do like Christmas. I love this time of year, the weather, the focus on Jesus, the time with family, the lights, the ambiance, the songs, the smells, the sights. Uh, and rarely have I had a bad Christmas. Some of us may view Christmas th uh, through that peaceful, nostalgic lens, and then we project that on the birth of Jesus. We have an idealized, sanitized, glamorized concept of what that first Christmas could have been like. And we picture, you know, Joseph and Mary nuzzled soft in, in some soft hay on a warm evening with a gentle breeze, surrounded by non-smelly animals who are all smiling, and, and Mary holds a perfectly quiet baby boy under a shaft of moonlight. The perfect evening for a perfect couple, right? Yeah, well, that's really not how that situation looked at all. That first Christmas was messy, it was dangerous, and it was controversial. That night was monumental and life-altering, kind of like a few painful Christmases uh, that our family shared. And one being Christmas of 2009 when we returned from the mission field on Christmas Day, because flights were cheaper that day. Uh, it was not a day of lights, not a day of joy or peace or or deep relationships, that year was full of pain and defeat and discouragement and loss and grief. And I learned a valuable lesson that year. Emmanuel, God with us, doesn't mean that my circumstances will always be wonderful. Or that all the people in my, my life will welcome me with smiling faces. Oftentimes, the circumstances we find ourselves in can make it seem that God may be against us. Make it feel like God is not for us. I'd say that Mary and Joseph may have felt that way uh, way back on that first Christmas. We're going to look at that. So keep your place in Matthew, and if you could, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And you can stay seated today. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So I would imagine any of us would be troubled by a greeting like this. First of all, it's an angel. But then second of all, I am favored? The Lord is with me? I live in Nazareth. It's a backwoods, unknown, unimportant town. How could the Lord be with me? Surely this angel is lost or confused or gone rogue or whatever. But I am not favored. I'm a nobody. I'm oppressed, poor, young, insignificant, a speck in a vast universe, a voiceless peasant in a vast, powerful, tyrannical empire. What is this angel doing talking to me, right? Have you ever felt like Mary? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And two things here. The angel said, do not be afraid. And this is a theme that we've looked at all year long as we studied through the Gospel of Mark. A theme that was incredibly important for the year 2020 and will probably be even more important for the year 2021. Nowhere in Scripture does God tell us to fear anything other than himself. 
He consistently says, do not be afraid. Now, why does he have to tell us that? Because the circumstances we find ourselves in as we hear and heed God's word can often be frightening. Frightening because what God typically asks us to do is contrary to prevailing culture. Tragically, we sometimes think it's okay to disobey this command of God. We reason that we have every right to be afraid. People will ruin my reputation. They will reject me. Finances are tight. Death could happen at any moment. Uncertainty is around every corner, right? So I have a right to be afraid. You know, as we will read today, it turns out that Mary's situation wasn't all that different from the one that we might find ourselves in. It was just as uncertain, just as dangerous, just as financially straining and misunderstood as our situations are. And she was commanded at the outset to not be afraid. And God says the same to us over and over again in Scripture. Why? Because, why did he ask her not to be afraid? Because the Lord was with her, it says. Notice the angel repeats the word favor. He comes, he greets her as favored one. He says, God's favor's on you. She was favored by God and God was with her. What did Mary do to be the recipient of God's favor? Nothing. She was a poor, unknown, simple woman from a small town, no different than you and me. She was favored because of the mercy and grace of God. She was favored because God had a purpose that he wanted to accomplish in and through her. God's mercy and favor and presence were upon her, even in her trying and fearful circumstances. And it says the angel continued. He said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Like, whoa. We read that story year after year, and we breeze right over this incredible statement. The angels just stated some very significant stuff. He says, he will be called Jesus. The name Jesus means Jehovah, or God is salvation. His very name was important. He says he will be great. He would, he would be important, influential. He would be noticed. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. In other words, he will be called the Son of God. And as we read in Mark's Gospel, both God the Father and a centurion called him the Son of God in fulfillment of this prophecy. And then he says he will sit on the throne of his father, David. So Jesus, as the Messiah, was the son of David. And, and the beginning of Matthew's gospel actually outlines the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to David. And it says he will reign over Israel forever, and of his kingdom there would be no end. And this is both spatial and chronological. Jesus would reign over Israel and also to the ends of the earth. And then he would also reign both now and forevermore. I mean, this is quite a prophecy. This is quite an interesting thing to receive. And for Mary and for the Jews of that day, this was like the winning ticket. The answer to all their prayers, all the waiting, all the prophecies, all the hopes and dreams of Israel for the centuries, God was going to send his son and he would be great and he would assume the throne of David and he would reign forever in righteousness and peace and in justice. This was incredible news. The Messiah would eradicate evil and justice abuse and violence and everything would be made right and the world, which is so difficult for us to live in, would be saved. And Mary, this young woman who was favored by God, she would be the mother of this amazing child who would grow into a man and would accomplish all of this. But look how Mary responds to this most incredible declaration, the hope of all the Jews 
And she said, and it says, well, it says that she, what does it say? She says, how could this happen, right? I don't know. Her question is, is pretty important, but in another sense, it seems to me that she missed the point. All she could think of was how. I'm a virgin. She was preoccupied with the how instead of the why. And you know, we often get caught up in the frightening and seeming impossible details of life, and we miss the big picture. We are preoccupied with the how, and we miss the why altogether. And God could be saying to us, hey, look at this incredible and impossible thing I'm in the process of doing in your life or in the lives of those around you, and I'm going to use you to do it. Yet like Mary, all we can focus on is the impossibility. We wonder how. I can't speak, or how I'm a nobody. How that is impossible. How I'm, a, I'm completely inept. How I have no money. How I'm too broken. And we miss the why. We forget who's talking to us in the moment. 2020 has been a year for the books. And sometimes I still think that I might possibly wake up and this will all be a bad dream. But it isn't. It is reality. We have seen the effects of evil and falsehood upon our society. We have watched as our healthcare system has been taxed. We've watched our government kind of crumble. Communism threaten to take over. Law and order being eroded. Police are made out to be evil and criminals are made out to be good. We've seen leaders abuse power. Businesses go under. News outlets promote propaganda and fear. We've seen the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. We've watched families be torn apart. People isolating themselves for months on end, suicide rates going up, alcohol abuse going up, interest in abortions going up, domestic violence going up, homelessness going up, fear and anxiety going up, depression going up. It's been a tough year. But this is all nothing new. It is very similar to the world in which Mary was living. And yet, God was up to something big. He was in the process of doing the impossible. And today, God is up to something big as well. He is doing something incredibly important right now. And yet, like Mary, many of us are asking, how? How is this possible? How can God possibly do anything about this past year? How will he stop the virus? How will our nation get back to normal? How will we ever come back from the destruction of wildfires and hurricanes and riots? How will I ever make enough money to support my family? How will this totalitarian stuff, not take over the world? How will my kids make it in the new normal, as they all call it? Point two, God's presence. Notice that the angel graciously answers Mary. Mary's how can this be question. And this is grace. The angel answered with a gracious and incredible message. It is both insightful and pertinent. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Spirit of God would come upon Mary and the power of God Almighty would overshadow her. Overshadow means to envelope in a haze of brilliancy, like a vaporous cloud that casts a shadow, kind of like a fog that covers everything. And this concept of overshadowing is reminiscent of Old Testament concept of the cloud of God's presence sitting upon Israel's place of worship, the tabernacle. And we're going to come back to that in a few minutes, so hold that thought. But the answer to how this was possible was that God's power through his presence would accomplish the impossible. God's power through his presence would accomplish the impossible, for nothing is impossible with God, verse 37. 
Mary heard what the angel said, and I'm sure she didn't understand it all. But in her bewilderment, in her surprise, in her fear, she surrendered. She said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If she was concerned with what would happen, she didn't let that get in her way. If she was afraid of the unknown, she didn't allow her fear to hinder her from obedience. And the angel's answer that God himself would do it was enough for her. The angel's answer that God himself would do the impossible was enough for her. She trusted that what God had ordained and what God had planned was, was in her best interest and for the good of all mankind. What an example that is for us. Trust, faith, hope in God Almighty. This all happened before the conception, the birth of Jesus. Now we're going to turn to our passage in Matthew and see what transpired because of this announcement. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Mary was beginning to show. Gossip was circulating through her hometown. She, I'm sure, walked around in shame. I'm sure she lost relationships over this issue. People who thought she was lying, right? Just tell the truth, Mary. How could she come up with this ridiculous story of an angel and God miraculously impregnating her? She was rejected. And Joseph, like everyone else, was going to end their relationship as well. Being favored by God and being overshadowed by God's presence didn't feel so good at the moment and didn't seem to be going too well for Mary. We pick up. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. There's that phrase again. To take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And that prophet's name was Isaiah. He said, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took his wife, but he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and called his name Jesus. Now thankfully, Joseph was, a man, was man enough to enter into that shameful and misunderstood situation with Mary. He was honorable, and yet I'm sure that there were many who believed that he was not. They probably thought that the child was his. I'd venture a guess that he lost friends as well. His reputation was tarnished. Obedience to God did not make his life easy and comfortable. It was even more controversial. Let's continue. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for so it is written by the prophet, and this prophet's name was Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now remember that interesting phrase, coming back to it. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his, Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening the treasures, they offered to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. To put this story in today's context, Mary and Joseph were in a controversial engagement. She was pregnant out of wedlock by the Holy Spirit, which I'm sure no one really understand or believed. They were surrounded by rumors and they lived in shame. They had a child in a town where there was no place to stay in a country ravaged by political unrest. And then they became refugees, fleeing to another country to save this precious baby's life because he was being hunted by a crazy totalitarian king named Herod. Jesus was born into a family with a stepdad, very little money, and where the family was running for their dear lives. You think 2020 was bad? It wasn't that bad. This world is messed up by sin and its consequences. And it always has been. The manger scene that we so often glamorized was a mess. It was controversial and political unrest and there was murder and tyranny and rumors and misunderstandings and uncertainty and poverty and running and hiding and difficult choices and unintended consequences. And yet, even from this passage we just read, full of darkness and evil, we actually see glimmers of hope. Now remember the fact that Mary was overshadowed by the Most High now I want you to consider this. Back in chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, it talks about a star that the wise men followed. Have you ever wondered about that star? I have. How could a star guide one some, someone to as specific as a place as a home, a house? Now some say this bright star was the aligning of three planets, of Jupiter and Saturn and Pisces, which, which happened in 7 uh, BCE which created an exceedingly bright star or light in the sky. And actually, cool fact, uh, Jupiter and Saturn will be aligning tomorrow night for the first time in 800 years, okay? Well, very close. They'll be super close to one another. So we might be able to see it. The last time they came that close was 1226, okay? So this is an interesting year, right? 2020? What else could happen? Um, so some people theorize that it was the aligning of those planets, some theorized that it might have been a comet, you know, with a tail as big as a kite, right? And some comets did last for weeks, and, and if close to the earth, they, they could have looked like they pointed to a place on earth. I think there's some validity to all of this. It could have been that there was a combination of all of this. But, but even as a kid, I would read the story and I'd say, well, how did it rise and then go before them and then come to rest upon the place where the child was? If it's a comet, how did they know which specific house it was? Something more than a comet was passing through the sky. And so here's my theory. It's only a theory. You can, you can stone me later, but I think it actually has some merit. Okay? Look up a few verses into Matthew 1, to 23. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. And remember what the angel said to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
And these words are similar in tone to Old Testament references of God's presence. Listen as I read from Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. This is the, uh, the, the, the children of Israel in the desert, and they just made a tabernacle where God's presence would dwell, and it said, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of the Lord would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all Israel throughout all their journeys. So the physical manifestation of God's presence was a cloud by day and fire by night. A shadow-casting cloud in the day and a light of fire by night. And Moses uses the same description when God's presence rested on top of Mount Sinai. There was a thick cloud and fire on the mountain in Exodus 24. Also, when Moses met God's presence uh, in the burning bush, remember? It says that God was in the bush in a flame of fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then 2 Chronicles 7, 1-3, when Solomon dedicated the temple of God where, where God was, where the people of Israel were to go and worship, it said that God's presence came down and was manifest with fire and glory on the new temple. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 2 to 3, when the disciples were in the upper room and, and Jesus had ascended into heaven and he said God's spirit was going to come upon you, it, what, something came and rested upon all the disciples in that room and it was described as a flame of fire. So it seems to me that when God allows his physical presence to be seen, it was often in the form of cloud or fire, flame, and Jewish rabbis in the time between the Old Testament and New Testament written coined the term Shekinah or Shekinah glory to describe this phenomenon of God's presence as a flame. The term comes from the Hebrew word Shekan, which literally means to reside or permanently stay. God with us, right? The Apostle John said this, Now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. And then listen, we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. Could it be that the star that the Magi were following was the Shekinah glory of God, starting out as a star in the night sky and then leading them to a flame of fire to the place where Jesus' presence was, God's presence in the baby Jesus? Makes you think, doesn't it? It's a theory. It's a theory. But consider this. The faith of Mary, the, the belief and the curiosity of the Magi, the obedience of Joseph in the moment didn't change the evil and dangerous and stressful and uncertain circumstances they were in. Even though God was with them and overshadowing them and there was a star that led the wise men to them, they had to wait for God's full plan to unfold. And at the moment, things looked really bad. They were saving Jesus by running from an evil king, hiding from the gossip, simply obeying the angel one day at a time. How were these circumstances ever going to result in Jesus saving the world? How could Jesus ever grow up and assume the throne of David and reign forever if we're on the run to Egypt? We look back on it and we know the answer. But they had to wait. Day in and day out. Waiting is a part of life. The Advent season leading up to 
Christmas Day is a time of expectant waiting. I remember being a kid waiting in agony for Christmas Day to come, right? I saw those presents and I wanted to dive in way early. Advent is a derivative of the Latin word for arrival. And during the month of December, we wait in expectation for the day when we celebrate Jesus' arrival as a baby 2,000 years ago. At the same time, we're waiting for the arrival of Jesus as his, in his second coming. So during Advent, we both look back and we look forward. We look back with thanksgiving and joy and wonder. And we look forward with hope and anticipation and with curiosity. And when God first entered time and space as baby Jesus, the Jews were in a sort of exile. Their land was occupied. The people were disillusioned. The national identity was shaken. And they were looking forward to a future hope. The Jews were looking for a Messiah. They were waiting for an expectant hope. And they thought the advent of the Messiah would be triumphant. He would arrive as a great king, a conquering hero, an unmistakable heir to the throne of David. They looked forward to his coronation, to his destroying foreign kings who occupied their land, to his assuming the throne of David and bringing peace and justice to their land. This was their hope. And the Jews were waiting for salvation from exile. And today, as we wait for Jesus' return, all humanity is in exile. We all know that there's something inherently wrong all over the world. Governments wield totalitarian power. People are disillusioned. People are searching for identity. As humans, we chase after false gods, and, and we look to people or to politicians or to heroes to lead us into peace and prosperity. We long for evil and terror and murder and corruption to be eradicated. We want a Messiah to deliver us from poverty and sickness and death. We wait for the advent of a great king, a conquering hero, just like the Jews. We look forward to the destruction of terrorists and demise of warlords, the punishment of corruption, the eradication of disease and sickness, the ending of difficulty and fatigue and poverty and hunger, all those bad things. But as we see over and over again, no human, no human institution, no organization, no government, no nonprofit can accomplish this. No one has enough money to end poverty. We cannot get food into all the places that need it most. No scientist has been able to unveil the perfect cure. Sicknesses and diseases mutate and continue to spread. Terrorists and communists still pursue power and wealth through fear-mongering and violence. And in the end, no human can be a messiah. Why? Because all humans are full of sin. All humans are weak. And all of us need the presence of God. So we wait for salvation from our exile. But God, God had a plan, and he put it into play before the world was ever founded, and God's plan has never changed. As foretold by the prophets, and as the angel told Mary, the Messiah came to liberate everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, from our exile to sin and Satan and death and oppression and violence and chaos. The Messiah did not do this in the way that everyone expected through conquering earthly kingdoms and eradicating sickness and disease and destroying terror and poverty. In the miraculous works of Jesus, God actually showed that he could have done it that way if he wanted to. But he had something else up his sleeve. He came to conquer through a different way, through love and through suffering. In love, he came into this violent, sin-filled, dangerous, hateful world and was born as a human baby. He suffered and he waited just like the rest of us. He, was, he has been in our very shoes. 
He fled for his life, was rejected and mocked and unjustly tried and murdered and buried. But just when it seemed that all hope was lost, he rose from the dead. And when he rose again on the third day, he proved to us that he was more than just a man, more than an earthly king, more than a Messiah. He was more than a mere wish, more than a good teacher, more than a child in a manger. He proved to us that he was God and that God of all love and all grace and all peace. And that God is with us. Colossians 1.27 says this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Think of Mary overshadowed by the presence of the Most High. Think of the apostles and acts with tongues of flame resting on their heads. Think of the meaning of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. For those of us who believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, God's presence indwells us now just as it did Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And this means that we as believers have become the dwelling place of God, his living temple. And this brings us hope. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And with hope, you can endure almost anything. God's presence did not change the situation for Mary and Joseph. In fact, in the moment, it actually made things worse. And maybe your circumstances are anything but ideal. Perhaps like Mary and Joseph, you are misunderstood and rejected by friends and family. Perhaps like Mary and Joseph, you are afraid that terrible things could happen to your children. Perhaps like Mary and Joseph, your financial situation is looking pretty bleak. Perhaps like Mary and Joseph, it seems that you cannot catch a break and things keep getting worse instead of better. Perhaps like Mary and Joseph, you need someone to say to you, do not be afraid of the future. Remember, God's mercy, favor, and presence were upon Mary and Joseph even in their trying circumstances. And it's the same for each of us. For those who truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that his death, burial, and resurrection opened the way for forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God and hope of eternal life, for those who believe that God's mercy, his favor, and his presence are upon you, even in your trying circumstances. Mary and Joseph had the hope of glory, that Jesus would grow to do what the angel promised, and all things would be right, made right in the end, and it sustained them. When you believe in Jesus, he comes into your life and he indwells you and you can have the same hope of glory and this sustains you in your circumstances. If you do not have this hope, I would encourage you to place your trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for you. The fact that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins so that we could go free is the only true message of hope in this world. If you have already have this hope, then don't let go of it. Hold on to it. Jesus is in you, the hope of glory. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. I want you to listen to the words from a holy night again that we, just, that we just sung. In light of what we just heard, the King of kings lay thus in lowly manger. In our trials born to be our friend, he knows our need. To our weakness is no stranger. Behold your king before him lowly bent. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let, us with, let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. O oh, praise his name forever. 
His power and glory evermore proclaim. Remember, God's presence in us brings hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth that when we believe we have hope of eternal life. We have hope of a future beyond all this mess, beyond all this sin, beyond all the consequences of sin. We have hope of a perfect life with you in heaven. We don't deserve it, but we welcome it and we gladly receive it. Thank you. For those who may not have placed their faith in Jesus, Father, we pray for them this morning that they would do so and receive your forgiveness and grace and peace and hope that they could enter into this Christmas season with new understanding of what you have done for them because you sent Jesus as a baby at this time. Pray that all of us may go from here encouraged that you, God, are entirely for us, that you love us, and may this Christmas be a reminder of all the good things that you have done for us. You've given us life and health, hope and peace and incredible joy. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would encourage you to stick around for coffee and fellowship out in the lobby after service. Uh, Don't forget to drop your uh, envelopes or your offerings in the boxes near the doors. And if I do not see you on Christmas Eve at 4 o'clock, then I wish you a Merry Christmas. Uh, With that, why don't you stand for our benediction. Receive this benediction from Romans. May the God of hope fill you with joy, fill you up with peace, so that your believing lives, filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit, will brim over with hope. Go in the hope and the love of Jesus. Merry Christmas.